what I tell women who are, you know, who are scared about it is the women that are in America right now, I think we are the ones that have the privilege of showing what it looks like for women to lead and whatever and however you choose, whether that's within your own family or your community or your business or in politics, and, and setting new sort of standard for what that looks like. I'm Danielle Weisberg. And I'm Carly Zakin, and we are the co-founders of The Skim. You're listening to our podcast, Skimmed from the Couch, where we talk to other female entrepreneurs about what it's like to get to the top and then what it's like along the way. We're talking bad advice, the really, really low days, the management mistakes, everything that goes into the real stuff. No BS. We started The Skim from a Couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it all began? We're on a couch. So please join us in welcoming Jennifer Palmieri to our couch. Jennifer has had a long history in politics, starting back in her college days as an intern for a California senator. More recently, though, she was President Obama's White House communications director, and then she was the head of communications for Hillary Clinton's campaign for president in 2016. Now she's also an author. Her new book shares stories and advice for the next generation of female leaders. Jennifer is a big believer in not hiding your emotions, which we'll get into. She even titled a chapter of her book, Nod Less and Cry More. And we're going to talk about that and a lot of other things. Jennifer, welcome to the couch. Thank you. I'm really happy to be with you all. We are so happy to have you here. So I think first... For anyone who is uh, interested in going into politics or communications, um, you've had dream jobs. Put po- right. put party lines aside, uh-huh. like how you were able to rise from an intern to actually through the ranks and to work not only in the White House, but then in you know one of the most obviously largest campaigns in history. You've made a name for yourself. If you were meeting with, you know, I saw you walk in with um, someone on our, our team here who's just starting mm-hmm. her career in comms. What, what do you say to that person? How, what is your advice? Um, what I found worked for me was to be, to just always try to be in the middle of wherever the center of gravity was in, a, in, a, in an organization, right? And sometimes that meant, and, you know, like, I think, which, which is true from everything we're going to talk about today, it's different for women than it is for men. Uh, but what I found was if I was able to get to the center of gravity for whatever an organization, even if it was at a junior level, that gave me the most exposure to learn and also gave me the most exposure to staff who would see that I did a good job and then promote me in other jobs. So, and sometimes that meant I made choices that were unconventional or that men would, were told me were a bad idea. I mean, I know you, you guys are big into career advice and that's you had to follow linear line, you know, sort of vertical lines to grow. And that was not my experience. So I worked for Leon Panetta um, when he was in Congress from California. And then he came to the Clinton White House and I went with him. I worked with him in the budget um, office of the White House. And then, and then he became White House chief of staff and he asked me to be his personal assistant, which some people said, well, you shouldn't do that. That's a step down. But I knew that put me in the center of the West Wing. And that was going to be a place where I could learn a lot, learn a lot from Leon and have a good exposure to what how the White House actually worked. And that worked out great. And then after he left, 
few years later, people saying I needed to go into a you know, discrete policy job or something that was more substantive, but maybe didn't have, was more narrow. And I thought, that doesn't seem right. Like, I'm in the West Wing of the White House. Mm-hmm. I should try to absorb as much as I can. So I went to scheduling, which people said, well, that's like a bad move. But I knew that was going to keep me in the center of action. And, you know, when you're in the West Wing of the White House, that's where you want to be. And then from that, I was selected to become a deputy press secretary, which was sort of odd because I had no press experience. But they were looking for someone to run, to be a deputy in the sense of be like a chief of staff for the office and really run the place. And you needed to understand how the White House worked to do that. So I was a good fit for that. So I think that sometimes, you know, you you think you have to follow a certain path about what the next job is going to be. And I think what's more important is to get yourself into the center of the action and around smart people that, you know, you're gonna be able to learn from and that are going to look after you for you later. What is a communication director's job? If you're the White House communications director, you have two jobs. And one is sort of the dry business of the president of the United States has an, has a responsibility to communicate with the American people, explain to them what's happening in the world, where we fit in, what they need to know about, what they need to be concerned about. And, you know, I think that is like that's just part of the your job as president. And so it's to help uh, him or her do that. And then the other part of the job is to communicate the the priorities and agenda of the president and his or her you know, qualities. I mean, that's what I would try to do, particularly with President Obama. And, you know, what I found working for him was because these media platforms are so diffuse, President Obama and I think future presidents are going to need to spend a lot more time communicating because you got to reach, you can't just expect that the nightly news is going to pick up what you're trying to um, communicate. And we did that with Obama. We spent, you know, we looked for lots of different outlets, outlets that presidents had never been on before, because if you don't, you're not talking, you're really not reaching people. One of the things we talk a lot about here at The Skim in terms of management is is training people younger in their careers about how to manage up and what yeah. that means. And a lot of times what that means is being able to give critical feedback to your boss. Right. You've had quite an intimidating set of bosses. <laughs> I don't know who is more intimidating. Like, I don't. I mean, honestly, I think it's kind of scary to give Leon Panetta negative feedback. So right. that one with that terrifying. one of all of them, I think, scares oh, he's me. So, so nice. He like, is. He's just got the best. Laugh. He knows a lot of stuff. He knows, <laughs> all, he does. He knows a lot of stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, what is it like to give the president of the United States? Hillary Clinton, like, how do you give people like that critical feedback and be like, you did a really shitty job today? Or yeah. like, this could have been communicated. So um, I've gotten to be really good at it. And I and now and I know, at being a manager myself now, how valuable it is. And that's why there's a one uh, relatively young woman uh, who will always be in my life, uh, my colleague, Crystal Carson, who started as my assistant in the White House. And even more so than my husband, Crystal can make me do the stuff that I don't want to do. And and it's like Crystal's approbation is very important to me. And when Crystal tells me I did something wrong, I take it very seriously. So it's like, and she was, you know, as a young person, as somebody who was like 24, probably when she started working for me, she's like, JP, you didn't do this or this or that, or like you should have done that better. And it's like, wow, I really appreciated that. And I saw... When I was relatively young working for President Clinton, this guy, his name was Doug Sosnick, and he was the political advisor uh, to President Clinton. And I watched how he worked, and he was just so disarming, 
because he was willing to say the things nobody else wanted to say. And I could see for Leon what a value that was, and I could see for President Clinton what a value that was. And I said to him one day, I get you now, you manage up by being the guy that delivers bad news. Like that's like your greatest moment in the meeting is like when you speak up and say something that nobody else wants to hear. And I never saw it backfire on him. And I've never, it has backfired for me, but only in people who I didn't, who I consider to not be worth my time, right? If you can't take that kind of feedback and the spirit is given, then, you know, I'm not particularly interested in you. So much of a career in politics, in some ways, is just picking the right person, right? Yeah. Because you're dealing with hitching a career to a personality. How do you decide who do you, who do you work for? And do you interview, like, the candidates or the politicians? Like, how do you make that choice? Because it is a huge amount of your time and your life that you're focusing on a person and their message. It's scary, Danielle, because you are – particularly if you're doing a presidential campaign, you are putting, you know, you know, so, you know some people, people describe it as putting your life on hold or taking the greatest adventure of your life, but it is probably two years of grueling, I mean, 18-hour days, just your whole existence, and you're putting your faith in this person that you know because they're human is flawed. Mm-hmm. And some people would look at my record and say, I don't have a great track record <laughs> at this because I, you know, the one time I had somebody to pick, because a lot of times these decisions are made for you because they're filtered out by the time, you know, like in 2016, I, I it was uh, I worked for Hillary. That's who I wanted to work for. I've known her for a long time. But in two, the 2004 race, it was sort of a wide open field, and mm-hmm. I chose to work for John Edwards because I thought, and I still believe this, I thought he was the person of the field that could actually beat George Bush. And, you know, he wasn't selected and we we didn't win and I still think that he probably was the best candidate for that but you know he ended up having really dark personal side that I couldn't see for a very long time for years couldn't see it for years and that is disconcerting when you when you think you know someone and what I have I believe in the you know 10-15 years since I got a I got a better sense of what to look for and what that is is someone who knows at their core who they are and is willing to reveal that to you in asking you to come work for them and also is willing to reveal that to voters and everybody's flawed everyone's going to have a hard time in the campaign process and you're going to be in the trenches with them and you want to make sure that they aren't going to you know that that you have a good sense of what's at that core Let's take a quick break. We've got a lot going on at Skim HQ. You're listening to Skim from the Couch, so we know you're all about female entrepreneurs and what it takes to make it to the top. But we've got something new to share with you too. In partnership with PNG, it's a new video series called Getting There, sponsored by Olay, Secret, and Pantene. Great lineup. We're going to let our friend Katie Couric, I cannot believe I just said that, ah, tell you all about it. Ever wonder how some of the best and brightest made it to where they are? Behind every successful woman is the story about getting there and their journey to the top. So I'm teaming up with The Skim to learn and share the secrets of their success. Follow The Skim on Facebook to watch Getting There. Now let's get back to our conversation. 
in an age where we've grown up putting everything on Facebook and everything on social media, like when I talk to my friends, the answer is resounding, my God, I would never run for office. Like, look at what happens to your life. Look at what happens to your family. Mm -hmm. Like, what advice do you have for people that on one hand want to make a change and then on the other hand are rational human beings who look at this as a horrible industry? What I tell women who are, you know, who are scared about it is the women that are in America right now, I think we are the ones that have the privilege of showing what it looks like for women to lead in whatever and however you choose, whether that's within your own family or your community or your business or in politics, and, and set a new sort of standard for what that looks like. So that means you got to be kind of brave and take the first step and, 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 and jump in, even though you're not perfect, and have faith that the people around you are going to support you through that. And I do see young women running and winning who have, you know, a long history on Facebook, yeah. too, right? So it, it, it's, it's, you know, there's not a checklist of here are the five things you need to do to be a great candidate these days, because I think women, for women, I think they are just remaking that in real time. And it's scary, but I'm just glad to see enough women are brave enough to do it and, you know, look at them and see this, the strength and safety in those numbers. What advice do you have for, for them, the women that are running? I really believe women work harder than men. I am willing to just state that <laughs> as a fact, even though it's stereotyping and it's generalizing, you are going to work harder than your male if you're running against a man. And you're going to work harder as a candidate, and you're going to work harder as an uh, as an elected representative. And know that about yourself at your core, and then just go do it. And I just see it. I'm helping some young women who are running now, and I just see it repeated over and over again. They're the ones that aren't taking anything for granted. They're the ones that are knocking on that last door and making that last phone call. So just know that about yourself going into it, and then also you're gonna hear criticism about your appearance and your voice and your clothes and they're and you're gonna get conflicting advice people are gonna say things to you like you need to show some more vulnerability but you can't ever appear weak and you're like wait how am I supposed to do that so it doesn't you're like that doesn't make any sense and you're right it doesn't make any sense because the advice that people give you is still about well, I'm not, I don't understand what it looks like to listen to this woman trying to lead or watch this woman trying to lead because that's not the model that we have. I have a girlfriend who emailed a bunch of us recently said, hey, I'm helping this woman candidate. Um, she's looking for a voice coach. Can somebody recommend someone? I was like, I promise you there's nothing wrong with her voice. Right. <laughs> there is nothing wrong with her so, voice. So you talk, you touch on kind of the vulnerability part, the appearance part. And, yeah. you know, I remember when, when Hillary published her book, uh, Following the Loss, there was a chapter that, that got picked up quite a bit, which was, she's like, here's the chapter if you really want to know how I get my hair done and my makeup and yeah. like how I choose the outfits. Like, I hate that I have to write this, but like, here's the behind the scenes yep. part. And what I took from that is like, whatever side of the aisle you're on, it's like any woman sure. in a professional setting can relate to that. And we yep. actually, had, we had Ariana Huffington um, on her recently, and she, she told us this story. She wears the same black dress, like to every event. She's yeah. like, I don't want to think about it. They all look the same. And I'm going to wear it over and over and over again. And she obviously can afford to have more than one black dress. Right. But her point was that that's not what's important. And I want to look good. And, like, here's the dress that makes me look good. And let's not talk about it anymore. And 
I want to, I'm curious, how do you, in your life, like mm-hmm. how do you balance the vulnerability? And you talked a lot about this in your book around yeah. showing emotion. And I want to get into that. Yeah. But also the fact that like there are different pressures on women yeah. to, to look a certain way, to look professional. And part of looking professional is like getting your hair done sometimes or, right. you know, having nice nails or, yeah. you know, there are, there are grooming things that just yeah. women have to deal with that men don't. Yeah. And that's still true. Women do still have to deal with that. I think, I mean, you know, I look look around the room that we're in now, right? And, like, you have women, like, everybody looks great. <laughs> um, but everyone's dressed a little differently, too, right? So I think that women are able to inject their own style into the workplace more. And I think that's changed enormously in the last two or three years. Um, I, um, for myself, I've decided... I have a uniform. Like I wear a white shirt from Everlane that I love. I have them. I have many of them, and jeans. And then if I have to wear something else, I have on my denim jumpsuit that I love. You look great. I love the denim jumpsuit. <laughs> You're wearing it right now. I'm wearing it right now. Um, and I have like a couple of dresses that, uh, if I have to put a dress on, I'm, I'm going to. But I think if you I, the way I look at my clothes now is I want them to tell you something about the life that I live and how I choose to live it, not like I'm trying to look a certain way. But, you know, business clothes, professional attire, it just, I mean, it really makes my skin crawl. I just feel like we're being costumed to look either like a man or the way men want us to look. And, I, you know, I decided that sometimes I'll wear jeans and a white shirt to things that people say aren't you know maybe that's not dressy enough or not suitable and then you got to keep doing it the way Ariana is and it's like oh that's just what she does and then it just becomes a thing she Mm -hmm. does do you know what I mean it's like you know I still put makeup on I still fix my hair I still want to look good I just want to have it express something about me as opposed to something that I feel is forced on me. So, That's how I feel different about the way I used to have to dress. No, we, we've met you once or twice before, um, you know, as we did our in political Hillary. coverage in yeah. 16. So before we had met you, I remember you responded to like a cold outreach email from us because we, yeah. we reached out to all of the candidates and we both were like, oh my God, she responded. <laughs> and the reason we had, oh my God, she responded is like, you have a reputation that you are, you are forced, like don't waste your time. So, so do you guys. Oh gosh. <laughs> also three, you know, whatever that was, three years ago, yeah. you did, I was like, whoa, these women <laughs> are, this is what I'm talking about. This is what the future media is going to be. It's Thank not, it's you. not Thank the you. old, Thank new, you. I got, not, not the old newspapers, people news. It's <laughs> this. Thank yes. you. But my point is, I was shocked in your book that you were so open about showing emotion because oh, yeah. that is not what I associated with you. And I found <laughs> it really refreshing and something uh-huh. that I was really looking forward to talking to you about because we've talked about it recently on this on this podcast and it brought up a lot of conversation with our own users and, and on our office even. So I would love for you to talk about your chapter in your book about, about crying. 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 Yes. Yeah, so uh, there, I'm sure there are women who do not cry at work. I don't know any of them. <laughs> like, I just, I just don't know any of them. So, and I'm somebody who I'm like, I am, I'm like really tough and I've been through just, I mean, I think even, um, you know, I think even, you know, President Trump's staff would say, yeah, she has been through the hardest of, you know, political pressures. Mm -hmm. 
and I can get and I can totally gut through them and I am gonna be and I'm great in a crisis I'm also somebody who's pretty emotional and pretty passionate and I'm easily moved to tears when I'm talking about something that's important to me so sometimes it's like you're crying because you get angry and frustrated, but also just like if we're talking about a really important issue or someone who, you know, and it would happen to me a lot, even in the White House, even in the Oval Office, just because the issues we dealt with were really hard. And then, you know, so I won't, I'm not sobbing in the Oval Office, but I'm When you're emotional, do yeah. you say, sorry, sorry, I don't know why I'm so upset? Cause no, I stopped doing that because... I realized I did know why I was so upset, and it was because I really cared about what I was talking about. Did it make the other person uncomfortable? No one ever commented on it. Have Um, you heard people comment post the book? Sure. I said something. I was on a a panel with Valerie Jarrett, and I said it would happen in the Oval Office, but President Obama acted like he didn't notice. She's like, he noticed. (laughs) Okay, fine. But I think that they appreciated – I think it was obvious what it was about. It was just that I was – you know, I really cared about what I was talking about. So and they, you know, and it was, and but, and I didn't feel like I had to prove that I was tough. Everybody, everybody already knew that part. So you're saying this as an established figure right. in politics that is like a, a name for themselves. If your entry level staffer in turn, like, let's say, messed something up that you asked them to do and, and, yeah. you, and they cried when you were like, hey, this isn't how it was supposed to go. Yeah. How do you respond? Yeah. So I wanted to say it as an established person to so like to give room to everybody else because like I know it's easier for me to say that than it is for someone who's just starting out, you know. He's like other pe- younger people would cry in front of me, and I'm like, that's why we had in the Clinton press office, Bill Clinton, way back then. My office was a crying room. I'm like, come in, like yeah, I get it. Like I know how hard people try and how frustrating it can be, and it's like upsetting when it doesn't when it doesn't doesn't go well. And so I don't think you should cry and like sob openly at your desk but go someplace where you feel like you can do that and let it out and why I think it's important to call this out now is because I think what's at the root of it is the shame that's associated with it is about the workplace still being a uh, that being a woman in a workplace is still something you have to overcome to prove that you belong there right I was talking to a woman who had been a reporter during the Obama White House and she talked about crying at work one day, and she said, I felt so exposed. Mm-hmm. And I was like, look at that. Look what you're saying, right? What does that say? That says, like, I'd been found out, like, I didn't actually belong here. Mm-hmm. And so I think that what's at the root of it is being a woman is something you have to overcome to belong in the workplace. And, like, that's why I think it's so important to to call it out. And I also think, you know, just no one looks at the world today and mm-hmm. thinks, wow, we've got it all figured out. Right. Like nobody thinks that. And a lot of times I hear people say, well, I was going to say X, Y or Z, but I didn't because I couldn't get through it without crying. And you're like, oh, well, wow, probably would have been amazing to hear what you had to say. It's Halloween and Carly really likes candy. Carly, what kind of candy are you going to eat? I just like the like mini Hershey bars. I really like um, Reese's, anything with peanut butter. But you know what sucks about eating peanut butter? It gets stuck in your teeth. That does really suck. I know, but I have an answer for it. What? Quip. Oh, how quippy of you. I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's where Quip comes in. Quip was designed to make brushing your teeth more simple, affordable, and even enjoyable. So it is created by dentists and designers 
It has sonic vibrations that work like magic. We like them all treat no trick and no post-Halloween cavities. Hooray. Yay. (laughs) That's why we love Quip. And they are backed by over 20,000 dental professionals. Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash skim, S-K-I-M-M, right now, you get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electronic toothbrush. Your first refill pack for free at getquip.com slash skim. Aside from working for Hillary, mm-hmm. have you felt like you've had like a group of women that have supported you along the way? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, politics usually male-dominated yep. industry. We have been very lucky in the New York startup scene of having a ton of women mm-hmm. that have helped us, and I think it really varies by industries. And obviously, there's it's been put in the spotlight, but is that something that you had the benefit of as you were growing up the ranks? Yeah, the um, I did, and there was a woman in particular in the Clinton White House. Her name was Evelyn Lieberman. I mentioned her in the book. She was, um, we all called her Mrs. Lieberman, even President Clinton, because she was such a force. And it didn't matter what job she had. She just, she just exuded competence and authority. And when she started in the White House, she was the personal assistant to the First Lady's chief of staff. And when she left the White House, she was deputy chief of staff for the whole place. Just really, like, rocketed in the ranks. And her advice to all women and all of us young women in the Clinton White House sought out her advice was people take their cue from you. And it's like the single, like, one sentence. Let me repeat it. People take their cue from you. So it means... If you act like you belong in the room, people think you do. If you act like your perspective matters, people will think you do. So you have to believe at your core that you do matter, and then you just act it. You know, another friend of mine, Stephanie Street, who was in the Clinton White House with me, she would say, you know, fake it till you make it. And that's true, too. Act as if. You know, so I, I learned that from from her from Evelyn, but it was, it was, there were, you know, women's women, Mignon Moore, African-American woman from Chicago has been in democratic politics for a long time. Maggie Williams in the Clinton White House. Uh, also Hillary herself, uh, who was like always a sister, always stood by the female staff, was like a, you know, kind of a, a you know, northern light for us and was always really supportive. And, and then the Obama White House, we had a cadre of women around, Valerie Jarrett, Tina Chen, the First Lady's Chief of Staff, Cecilia Munoz, the Mexican Policy Advisor, Kathy Rumler, the White House Counsel, Alyssa Master Monica, the Deputy Chief of Staff. And, you know, we would look out for each other. Even if we didn't agree with each other in a meeting, we'd be like, that was a great point Jennifer just had. And just to, you know, always make sure that we are, that we were supporting each other. And, um, you know, sometimes also you see ghosts, right? Sometimes you walk out of a meeting and be like, wow, the boys really dominated that meeting. You got to like point out to your sister, hey, sister, nobody muted you. You could have spoken up. And you need to do that because that's your job. And that's, it's like, you got to do that for the women that aren't here, but also it's just your job. And we got to like, so we would push each other in that way. In the startup world, we talk a lot about failing, failing fast. Like failure is yes, celebrated, I, I, I yes, think. Yes, I hear that a lot in Silicon Valley. It's uh, it's something that's harder. Yeah, we, we struggle with it. Um, we try to get better at it. The irony in politics is like, if you fail fast, you, you didn't really do it well right like it's kind of like you should fail but really slowly over the course of years so I would say yeah. like Hillary's 
campaign in so many ways obviously was historic and also ended in failure, Complete right? There, there was disaster. a loss. How do you how, how do you overcome failure? So there's so much failure in politics. And if you judge, I have never, evidently, from my long string of losses, I have never judged, I've never gone into a campaign thinking, I'm not going to do that campaign because there's just no chance that we're going to win. Because I just, I'm like such an optimist and I believe that there's always that, there's always that chance and there's the alchemy of the right candidate with the right staff at the right moment that's hard to predict. And so you just have to have a leap of faith that if you put your best effort into it and so does your candidate, the American people are going to respond. And the way I look at you know, the Clinton campaign was, man, we had a, it was a Herculean effort and it was the hardest thing I've ever done. And, you know, we some of my colleagues, we say to each other, like, I knew it was going to be hard, but not this hard. And we ultimately failed. But I am proud of the work that I did because I I know I left everything on the field. Like, I don't have regrets. I think some of my colleagues do about things they wish they did differently. And I'm just not built that way. I think I know I did everything I possibly could. And it didn't happen. But I still take some gratitude even from having had that experience and knowing that I put my best effort into it. You know, I have some people on Twitter will be like, you know, you're, you know, like a lot of people are critical of our effort. And I'll be like, I generally do this every now and then. I'll be like, you know what I know? I know I did everything I could to help Hurley win. Did you? Bet you didn't. So. Would you say that there is no excuse not to vote? I would say, yes, Carly, I would say <laughs> there is no excuse not to vote. And if you don't like the way the country is being run right now, whether it's nationally or in your own community, you should know that if everyone voted, it would be very different. So everyone should vote. Jennifer Palmieri, thank you so much for <laughs> being here. You. So fun, ladies. It's really great to be thank with you. Thanks. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all of the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 